You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to episode six of the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. How to succeed as a yoga teacher by focusing on cooperation over competition with my guest, Shannon Crow. Today's topic is really near and dear to my heart because it exposes the essence of how we as yoga teachers can not only find a balance between yogic values and a successful business, but actually use those yogic values as a guiding principle for how we behave in our business. When we do this, we no longer have to struggle between what's best for our business versus our sense of ethics. Humans are social creatures, and teaching yoga is a career that relies on that social aspect of our nature. Sometimes we see other yoga teachers acting in a way that doesn't align with our own understanding of yoga ethics. And however that might seem to be working for them, it does not mean that it's an approach that's effective in the long term. In the long term, I believe that a yoga business is going to be more successful if it is built on the foundation of yogic ethical principles. I believe that aligning the actions we take in our business with our values creates an internal state of coherence, and that state is a much more inspiring and activating and motivating state than its opposite, a state of discord, which will arise if you allow yourself to fall into some of the traps and pitfalls of entrepreneurship and business. Shannon, my guest today, is a perfect person for me to talk about this with because what she does with her business is so similar to what I do. She has her own podcast. It's called The Connected Yoga Teacher, and she works with yoga teachers to help them with their businesses and to mentor them just like I do. So when I launched my podcast, it would have been really easy for her to view me as competition and to either ignore me or, you know, undermine me in some way, not not that she would. She's like so the exact opposite of that. The whole point of this is that she has been incredibly helpful and supportive and, you know, given me her time and her wisdom and her advice. So I'm so grateful to Shannon and also grateful that she was willing and eager even to come on the podcast and talk about this topic with me. The big takeaway from our conversation for me is that what others are doing is not ultimately what should guide our actions. Verse 1.33 in the Yoga Sutras offers advice on how to interact with others based on their attitudes and their circumstances. So these are the four Brahma Viharas or the immeasurable virtues. And in my experience, they contain the seeds for a lifetime of spiritual practice and personal growth. The four Brahma Viharas include Maitri, friendship towards those who are happy, Karuna, or compassion for those who suffer, Mudita, joy for those who are virtuous, and Upeksha, 
equanimity towards those who are non-virtuous. Of the four karuna, compassion for those who suffer, is probably the simplest and most straightforward, the easiest for us as yoga teachers to connect to. Maitri and Mudita have some overlap, and they are the ones that are the antidote for jealousy and comparison. So this is a topic that Shannon and I discuss quite a bit in our conversation. Mudita is usually described as joy for the virtuous, and I want to give a little window into sort of this historical context for that term, virtue. When the Yoga Sutras were written and, and the, these, this philosophy was being developed, there wasn't a lot of social mobility, meaning most people stayed in the socioeconomic status that they were born into. And around that, there was, and for some people still is, this belief in karma and reincarnation. So woven into this discussion of joy for the virtuous is this worldview where there was an assumption that people who were born into prestigious families, that they earned that, that they got that from being virtuous in a previous life. So success and virtue are somewhat interwoven in an unspoken way. So that's why when we talk about mudita in a modern sense, even though we don't necessarily think that people who are successful are virtuous these days, but we do think that probably they worked really hard and they had some kind of, some kind of spark. They had something to them that was positive. So I love, though, that Maitri and Mudita are described separately because that's a great reminder that success and happiness aren't necessarily the same thing. And they can both spark envy. So these practices of friendship and sympathetic joy towards those that we're seeing as being successful, virtuous, and happy and, and any other any other qualities that that align with that is really powerful and rewarding. Now the final Brahma Vihara Upeksha is probably the most complex and challenging in my opinion. It bears a little bit of of layering looking into some some of the depth. Upeksha advises that when we see people acting out of integrity that we practice not getting ourselves emotionally involved that we practice equanimity. So a super important nuance to that is that if somebody is acting in a way that's harming others, upeksha is not implying, the practice of upeksha does not mean that we don't intervene. It doesn't mean we don't act. Upeksha is our internal state. So if there's harm being done to another and we are able to intervene in a non-reactive way, then probably we should. If there's harm being done to another and we can't be non-reactive, then we need to evaluate the level of harm and whether or not we're the best person to intervene, right? So if there's two people who could possibly intervene, one's reactive, one's non-reactive, probably the less reactive person should, be, should intervene. So the, there's a ton of gray area in this, but I thought it was worth pointing out that Practicing being non-reactive towards other people's behavior is not the same as like averting your eyes and not getting involved. You know, you, you really, that, that 
is a case-by-case basis. You have to ask yourself, who's being harmed? How great is the harm? And am I the right person to intervene? So I'm just as human as anybody else, and I'm completely aware that the ideal of being non-reactive in the face of injustice is not realistic all the time. Um, I would say that actually, by nature, I'm more reactive than the average person, but maybe we all think that. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Holding on to the ideal of, of equanimity, though, is the way that with practice and over time, we can become less reactive. And I can definitely tell you from experience that I am way less reactive now at age 40 than I was 20 years ago because I've been, I've been focused on it for 20 years. I've, I've been practicing. So again, in my limited personal experience, the more that I live and behave from a place of centered presence, the more effectively I communicate and take action. So these ethical principles, these immeasurable virtues, are not only helpful for developing inner coherence and peace, but I believe that they're important skills for becoming successful in business and in life and in relationships and in every area. So that is a a little background of why I feel this conversation is so important. And I'm really excited to jump into this interview that I did with Shannon. I want to tell you a little bit more about Shannon before we get started. Shannon's been teaching since 2006 and continues to teach weekly group and private classes in Owen Sound, Ontario, Canada. She specializes in yoga for pelvic health. In addition to that, she hosts the Connected Yoga Teacher podcast and offers in-person and online teacher training. So. I think that once you listen to this to this interview, I think that you'll agree with me that Shannon is one of those like really pure-hearted, beautiful people and I don't I only know her online, but I ha- feel a ton of affection towards her and I think you will too. So, after that long intro, let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast, Shannon. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. I'm excited and congratulations on launching the podcast. Thank you. So for uh, people who don't know, Shannon has a podcast herself and I'm scheduled to be a guest to talk about my project where I'm still working on it, but (laughs) I'm in the middle of talking to a hundred yoga teachers. I'm uh, I'm about two thirds of the way through now. That's amazing. (laughs) What a huge project. It's, it's good though. It's like, it feels like an investment. Yeah. It's like an investment in understanding what's going on in the yoga community in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. Yeah. So Shannon, will you start just by telling us a little bit about yourself and about how you got interested in the topic of today's conversation, which is cooperation as a method for growing your yoga business? Or did I say that right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I kind of 
where I am now, it's really a lot about community over competition and how I got there. Hmm. So I am a mom of three, a yoga teacher. I've been a yoga teacher now for 12 years and also a consultant for yoga teachers. I have worked at different studios over the years. So I've helped manage four different studios and seen different business models. And at times in my own yoga career, for sure. So just living in my own life as a yoga teacher, I would feel uh, like a, a, a little, I guess it's like a fear or, you know, a, a feeling that would come up of competition, really of thinking like, oh, look at that teacher, like they have a huge class, you know, they'd share a photo or uh, they're so successful or um, look at all of the classes that they're teaching. So at different times, I felt that. And then in going to work for a yoga studio, I heard different studio owners worried about teachers going to different studios. And it wasn't until in the last five or six years that I was asked to manage a space, a yoga studio, and to set the groundwork. And in that, we really, as a collective of yoga teachers, wanted to bring in community. So community, supportive community for yoga teachers. Uh, Also, we wanted the students to feel like they had a community. And we made the rule of yoga teachers can teach anywhere. And we'll promote you like wherever you're teaching kind of thing. And so it was a whole new way of, of running a yoga studio as compared to different ones that I was a part of and it worked really well. (laughs) So, and then working in as a con um, consultant for yoga teachers, I find that once they get into what is their unique niche, like their, what makes their teaching really come alive then that competition kind of falls away. And that's what happened in my own yoga business as well. Once I niche down, niche down, then it was just like, it doesn't really matter if someone's doing the same thing, they're not ever going to do it the same way that I am. Yeah, that makes sense. It feels like in my memory of when I started teaching yoga, which is similar to you, it was about 13 years ago. So it was right around the same time that at that time, there was less emphasis on a yoga teacher as a business person, or there was less awareness that you become a business person when you start teaching yoga. And in the town that I live in and have lived in and have taught in for 13 years, which is Asheville, North Carolina, there were much fewer studios. And there was this sense of you can bring your guests, you can bring as many guests as you want to your classes, you can promote yourself, you know, your other events, your other classes. And then at a certain point, as yoga started to grow, as there became more teachers and more studios, the studio started to tighten up. And as a teacher, I was not used to that. Like I had kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, grown up in a certain culture that was more cooperative, partially because it wasn't specifically business focused. Um, But I got in trouble sometimes from the studios that I worked at because the rules were actually not laid out explicitly, but they would 
it was, it was like the, the culture was changing, but we weren't talking about it. So that's why I wanted to bring you on today to talk about this issue in a more explicit way, because some of the, some of the challenges with competition and uh, non-competes and um, all, of, all of this sort of side of a yoga business, it's not always laid out explicitly. Mm-hmm. It's so true. Yeah, there can be like an unwritten rule or, you know, some yoga students have very clear and set rules as well. I think it's very helpful as a yoga teacher to go right back to where it comes from and to understand and to see it for what it is. So it's a fear and feeling like there's a lack of, you know, there's a lack of yoga students or there's a lack of money to go around. So that's what's really underneath it. When it comes up for myself, then I, I kind of sit with it for a bit. Like I know it's going to pass and I know it will come up again. It, yeah. it just does. But if we can understand that and we see that that's how that studio owner is feeling, you know, they have to pay the bills and they're feeling uh, the crunch. They're feeling the crunch. They're either thinking that other yoga studio is going to take all of our students. You know, um, this yoga teacher may get to know all of our students and then take them with them. So to get under the the overall emotion that's going on there and to understand it and have a bit of compassion for it, I think is key to starting. And then that communication piece that you noted you know, what are the rules? So I think it's important if we're going to approach a new yoga studio to really dig in and ask those questions. That makes sense. Absolutely. And, you know, what, what I was thinking of as you were talking is how this, you know, this translates is not, it's important to remember that this is not like a unusual to the yoga space. This is everywhere. It's just that, Yoga as a philosophy has these principles that are counter to this idea of ego and competition. And so we as yoga teachers and practitioners, there's there's more to reconcile here. But in the bigger culture, like this is what brings nationalism. Like this is how nationalism comes about is this sense that there are uh, scarce resources and we're all in competition for them. And it makes sense to me that, that that instinct and that tendency to see that, to see the world in that way comes from, you know, kind of our evolution of a time when that was true. Something that's, I think, been really powerful and helpful for me is a book that I'm in the middle of listening to right now which is Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. Are you familiar with it? No, I haven't. I haven't read it or heard it. It's one of those books I think everybody should read. It's a rational case for enlightenment ideals. But the first part of the book, the part that I've, you know, have been listening to is a evidence-based argument that life is getting better for everybody around the world as a whole. And that through human innovation, we have exceeded like all expectations of quality of life for humans, and that there doesn't seem to be any stop to that. 
So it's been a really, um, I don't want to say fulfilling, but it's like relaxing almost to listen to this because he's very convincing and he has a lot of charts. Of course, you know, you have to buy the actual um, handheld book, but I like to read when I walk, but he has all these charts and data and, and he's kind of showing you like, no, this, this tendency for us to see scarcity, it, here's where the tendency comes from. And here's why it's not true (laughs) right now we're doing well. Everybody's doing well. Everybody's doing better. For example, he talks about how this, I don't know if it's a meme exactly. Yeah, it's a meme. It's an idea that we pass on that are, that we're worse off than our parents are. For example, he says, that's so not true because even if you're making less money than your parents are, your money is buying so much more. Right. Instead of having to buy a video camera, a compass, a flashlight, a you know telephone, a camera, I mean, you have like this one device that would have cost that costs like half as much as just a video camera would have cost thirty years ago. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Yeah, I'm thinking of the video camera I bought when my kids were little, like, <laughs> it's like a, a camcorder. <laughs> yeah, with little tapes. Now we just have a phone. That's so true. I think I think that's really comforting. Like you said, that reading that book would be really good. Another one that I like, I think it's called Originals. I don't know the full title of it. Any book that gets into who you are as a unique person. And this can stretch out to be a studio as well. Like a studio can really define what their culture is and stand out from another yoga studio if they work on it. There's another book as well. It's on marketing. It's not yoga studio based, but it's called This I Know by Terry O'Reilly. That one, like I started marking the book up like crazy. And then I just thought I have to buy the book. (laughs) Like it was from the library and I was putting sticky notes all over it. I didn't write in the book, the library book, (laughs) but I had sticky notes all over (laughs) and thought, yeah, I have to buy this one for sure. And it's really about that, like drilling down what is your unique message. I do find that I think what makes it difficult, and this is from me looking from the outside in, so it's easier for me to see it. When I work one-on-one with yoga teachers, I, I hear this message of like, when I say to them, let's define what your unique yoga is, or let's niche down a little bit. There's a lot that happens, but when I ask them names of classes, they sound like every other class, you know, gentle yoga, moderate yoga. And when I push to, to bring... I do push a little bit in this to to see what what else could we call it that would speak right to your audience, that would share who you are as a teacher and draw in the people that you want. A lot of the time, the pushback I get is it's all yoga. Mm. Sure, sure, it's all yoga, but it's also marketing that yoga. It's all yoga and you have this unique way of teaching that no one else can do. and. And it's, it's not easy to convey what that is, but I think it's really necessary. So. Yeah. It's like 
putting out the the bat, you know, the the bat symbol up in the air to find the people who need you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a big part of letting go of that. I think another part is getting off social media for a bit. If you feel like you get into that place of like, look at what they're doing, look at what they're doing for me. It can be sometimes like stopping listening to other podcasts for a while or not going on Instagram. Instagram really pushes my buttons faster than any other platform. (laughs) Yeah, because while it's so visual and the posts that get all the likes and the comments are um, these fancy poses with young, beautiful humans in them. And then sometimes they're nearly pornographic. Like there are, there are these Instagram posts that I see that I like, I feel like I take a deep breath and I go, I can't imagine a human looking at this and not either feeling slightly uncomfortable or turned on. I mean, and of course that's like, that might be me having a dirty mind or whatever, but I'm like, you know, the booty shorts and then the butt like right in my face. I, I, I get I get uncomfortable with that. And, you know, it probably has to do with like the media culture and like seeing that, you know, selling things all the time and then feeling like there's a disconnect between that and practicing yoga and getting really confused about why, why somebody who loves yoga, because I really believe that I don't think anybody gets on Instagram, you know, and chooses yoga as their medium with the intention of like exploiting it. You know, I think that people love yoga, even the people that I don't necessarily agree or feel comfortable with their choices around how to market their yoga. I believe they love yoga. Right. And they, they are kind of niching down. Like they're looking probably to sell yoga to someone who wants to have a really nice butt. That (laughs) makes sense. That's their niche. But I feel like it can also, it's like a moment of svadhyaya, that self-study of why is this bringing, for me, when I scroll through Instagram and then I see like, you know, a really amazing handstand out in the middle of nowhere or uh, even more so is moving into handstand really gracefully. I think I can't do that. You know, am I, am I less of a yoga teacher? Like thoughts like that will come up. And then I know I need to eyes on my own page. Like who is my audience? Well, my audience is like 50 plus women who have pelvic health issues and they're not trying to do handstand. So I'm back to like eyes on my own page. What can I create and what can I offer out into the world? Because that person's rocking the handstand, you know, once I, once I back up to that, then it's a little easier to just think, way to go, like amazing handstand. And they probably worked really hard for it. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I believe you could do it, but you would have to, that would have to be your priority. You would have to get up every day and go, all right, I'm, I'm working on, you know, my drills and you know, you're a mom of three and you help women with pelvic health issues. So maybe that's not your priority. (laughs) No, it isn't. (laughs) No, (laughs) but I do love a good handstand, but I need the wall to help me and I don't post it. And 
a big part of that is it would it would frighten my audience. Ah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. I'm passionate about handstands in my own personal practice. They are just so um, aggravatingly hard that it feels like like a really it feels like yoga to me to be working on it. So like with that, abhyasa vairagya, abhyasa vairagya, you know, like constant, consistent, consistent, consistent. Um, but I don't post a ton of them either. And mostly it has to do with the fact that um, that's not what I want to be known for at this point. Maybe at some point <laughs> that would change. but yeah, I want to, I have a different focus. So, and then also there's a little bit of the, I've, I heard of this saying recently, different is better than better. I can't remember where it came from. So I, I like to attribute um, quotes, but I can't, (laughs) I can't remember that came from, but different is better than better. And that is like one of my guiding principles right now. I, I don't want to do what everybody else is doing because then how, you know, then I'm, I'm not as likely to be able to help people who aren't already being helped. That's amazing. Different is better than better. Yeah. Oh, I really like that. That goes into the whole competition as well. That's like, no one else can teach yoga like you. Right. And that's the, that's the wild thing about this competition versus community thing is that we are as yoga teachers, it's not like we all go to do the same thing. Like if I go to my dentist and then I go to another dentist, chances are they've taken really similar training and they do kind of the same thing. Now I go for the conversation and my dentist is really nice. And that's what yoga teachers are forgetting. Like they take all kinds of different trainings You know, some of them are really into singing bowls and sound healing. Well, I don't know how to do that at all. I love going to a class like that, like restorative with sound healing. I think that yoga teachers forget how how unique they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another part that comes up in this is that I also think we forget that we're professional. So to go back to the dentist analogy, if I went to my dentist, I'm not going to hear him or her speak badly about another dentist. Mm -hmm. And for yoga teachers, too often I hear that. Mm -hmm. And in our own community, we try really hard to to promote community. And, And I know it's not always easy. But if you think of, let's take an example that, that comes up. So, and, and I would say that I have done this as well. So if we're, we're talking with a yoga student and they're saying, well, at so-and-so's class, I did this pose. And then we let them know, oh, well, I don't teach that because this reason. Mm -hmm. But if instead we can look at it and think, What about as a collective? What if instead of thinking I'm an individual, I'm a collective of this professional group of yoga teachers? Then how would I word that? Mm 
So then that changes it so that we might be saying, as yoga teachers, we used to do it this way, but now we've moved forward and we've done it this way. It was Andrea Peloso, who lives in Toronto, who really brought that forward at a workshop. And I was thinking, that's so true. You know, doctors are the same way. Medicine moves forward. We learn new things. Doctors don't like say, well, that it was that guy over there right. who, who had it all wrong. And they move forward as a pro- professional collective. And I think we need to look at that. One of the things that's so hard, though, is that we don't have any um, consistency in trainings. Mm-hmm. And so what I might have learned in my training and then my you know, additional training over the years might be opposite, actually, of what somebody else learned, you know, the um, so while that provides this really wonderful uniqueness for each of us. And, and that is part of what I love about yoga is that I'm constantly learning things from other areas of life, like psychology or Buddhism or, um, you know, biomechanics, just strict biomechanics that, that will seamlessly fit into teaching yoga. So I love Mm -hmm. that. And then at the same time, though, um, that does make it more complicated. And, you know, as we grow, I think, as teachers, we learn to embrace that complexity and to understand that there's not one right answer to any question. And so, you know, when, when our students ask us questions, we say things like, in my experience, what's worked for me is, you know, my current understanding is that this is effective, but I train yoga teachers, you know, so I do, and I think you probably do also. Mm -hmm. And so in that 200 hour training, I noticed that people really want the right answer. (laughs) That's why I don't do 200 hours. (laughs) No, I wait till someone else does that. I've assisted 200 hours and I wouldn't want to lead a 200 hour. They, um, you know, they have their, their pluses and minuses. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, there's a a really beautiful freshness and excitement from the trainees that keeps me invigorated in that way. You know, they really, they really feed me. And at the same time, you know, I also have to let go a lot of how much context and complexity I can convey to, you know, an individual. They're, they're all individuals. So some of them are ready for more or less, but I will have like these pretty long drawn out explanations about a certain topic, kind of sharing the different angles. And then when I hear them try to sum it up or tell somebody else about it, I'll be like, no, that is not what I said. Right. I just remember being part of a 200 hour and wanting to add a lot in what I was saying to the people who are running the training. What about this part? What about this? And they said, whoa, like this is the first thing that they're taking. You know, we have to keep it really simple. Here are the basics that we have to get in and then and we take it from there. So that, I mean, I really appreciate when people come from a 200 hour and they have a really good foundation because it's not an easy thing to do. 
uh, and then I like to, I specialize, I have niche yoga teacher trainings, like yoga for pelvic health, prenatal yoga, and then art of assist, which is hands-on assist. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. So those are really great for people to get into once they're done with their 200 hour and start to dive a little bit deeper. And that's, you know, that's part of my intention with this podcast is to help people dive more deeply into specific topics um, and still, you know, in a, in an audio format and a, you know, a certain length of time, there's going to be limitations to that, but it will help. I hope I, and I think it will help people figure out what they're excited about. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I think you're, you hit it right on where you said there is no, like, this is the way you're going to come out of a 200 hour. You know, we, we have this push pull all the time of, we don't want yoga to be regulated. And yet we're pushing a lot to move it forward. Like a profession that is regulated, like massage therapy, for example. Um, I think every teacher probably has that dance within them. Like it would be great to be regulated for these reasons and these reasons we don't want it. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So on a practical level, I can see um, this topic of cooperation versus competition coming up from one of two different angles. So it can come up from the inside, which we talked about a bit, and then it can come up from the outside, right? We can perceive other people as behaving in a way that um, feels more competitive, whether whether that's an individual or a lot of times it'll be the studios with the non-competes or the rules about promoting your, your own, um, your own, your other your outside events. What is some advice for people as they come up with this? What is some advice for yoga teachers in both of these cases? I think on a personal level, I think it's really important that eyes on your own page kind of thing. And part of that I believe is your own practice. So I am really open on my podcast talking about how my own practice is a struggle And I've just actually booked, I meet with a mentor next week. So I've hooked up to meet with a mentor. I've worked one-on-one with people in my business at different times. I've worked with a yoga teacher and I just know that in my own personal life, it's time to get back to that. So that's one huge piece of that is to go back to the eight limbs of yoga and back to your own personal practice, whatever that means. And to kind of dig in and say, okay, I'm feeling this way. Why am I feeling this way? Uh, When I, it would have been about seven years ago, I moved to a new town. I was teaching in a city that's about 20 minutes away, but I had moved. When I moved, a yoga teacher wrote me an email to let me know that there was not enough room in the little town I had moved to for both of us to be yoga teachers teaching there. Whoa. Yeah. And so I sat with it for a bit. You know, I was really shocked thinking, I'm not used to this. Same as you, I wasn't really thinking about thinking about the competition of yoga as a newer yoga teacher. And I decided not to answer the email. And I think, you know, one hand, I could have written back and reached out and said, oh no, not at all. Like, but I thought, this isn't my thing. This is her thing to go through. 
you know, she's obviously feeling threatened. I wasn't even going to be teaching in that small town, but I didn't feel like I even wanted to spend the time to explain myself. Mm. So I think we're going to feel it as yoga teachers from outside as well, especially at yoga studios. I think it's important that our values match up with the yoga studio. I hear from teachers all the time who are teaching at a space that will not allow them to teach at other spaces or even to host a retreat somewhere else or do something. But they're not offering them full-time work either. No, no. And, and so what it, what happens then is those teachers can't make a go of it as a yoga teacher. So they will eventually lose that person as a yoga teacher because they just like, they'll get a part-time job somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So overall big picture studios need to see that, a yoga teacher who's traveling around, say there's a yoga studio that opens right next door. This always throws studios for a real loop. Yeah. Um, this has happened at so many places. Think of a town with a car dealership. All of the car dealerships are in the same place. Yeah. And you know, when you're going to drive to go get a car, you can go look at all of them. Mm-hmm. And what do those car dealerships do? They have promotions, they have sales, you know, they work on their sales. They're not trying to say, don't go over there to buy your car. They're not, they're not even focused on the other car companies. I'm sure they are, but they're not talking to their customers about it. Because so <laughs> <laughs> if a car I, dealership did that to me, I'd probably be right out the door, right? <laughs> I know. And we as yoga teachers need to remember that. So the worst case scenario is there's a yoga studio that opens next door and your yoga teachers are going to go over there. I'd say as a studio, let them let them shine their light over there and then bring students back to your studio. I I just think it can change. It just has to start with that mentality of like, there is enough. We have a feeling there is enough. I know that I just worked with a group of yoga teachers over the weekend. And that was part of the thing that we were talking a bit about business practices. There was a group of 14 of us there. And I said to them, like I teach yoga for pelvic health in our area and a lot of them are from our area. And I was begging them, please teach this. There's way more need than teachers. Wow. And so I think that's important that we are encouraging other people and they'll go off to specialize. You know, some of them were really interested in working with men. Well, I work with women. Some might work with athletes. Some might work with brand new moms. There's niching down even in that. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one, um, one memory I had as you were talking about, you know, the jealousy piece that comes up. And again, this is something that I, I can't attribute to a specific source. I can't remember it. But I heard once that jealousy is an internal signal that you are not filling your potential, that you know you have more potential that you're not stepping into. Oh, that is so good. (laughs) So that rather than like being like, you know, meeting this emotion of jealousy with, um, you know, with, with dread and like, oh God, I'm a bad person for feeling jealous. Oh, you know, this is so unpleasant, which it is. (laughs) It's very unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Instead, we could see it as like a little guardian angel or a, you know, just a red flag of you're, you are capable of more. If you feel jealous of someone, it's not somebody, 
I don't feel jealous of um, somebody who's completely out of my realm, right? I don't feel jealous of somebody who can like drop back into a back bed and put their butt on their head. Okay. Right. I know that, that my body's never going to be capable of that. And I'm not jealous. If I get jealous of somebody's beautiful press handstand, it's because I know I am capable of that. Right. <laughs> and I'm, I just haven't hurt, worked hard enough to make right. it happen. So, you know, I think jealousy points us in the direction of what do we actually want? And where are we not stepping into our own potential? Yeah. Oh, that's a really good one. (laughs) I wonder if studio owners can look at that as well. Maybe we're not. You know, I I have limited experience. I've never owned a studio. But the peripheral experience I've had is that studio owners are overwhelmed. Yeah. But there's so many details. And it's such a tough business model that I just have nothing but compassion for people who, who are taking that on. I, you know, I like, I feel like I just cannot judge them and their actions and their behavior because it is such a tough road. And I would love to, you know, one day get to work with some studio owners and, and help them. I don't feel ready for this yet, but to, to let's evolve this, business model of sharing (laughs) yoga because the the way that the studio business model is kind of headed is it's just getting harder and harder and there's so much going on that I cannot like yoga teachers just independent yoga teachers have such a hard time maintaining their practice I cannot imagine what yoga studio owners must feel like in that regard Well, I'll tell you that the yoga studio that I was managing for four or five years, it was a role that was basically like, I, I wasn't responsible for paying admin fees. I was getting paid, but every other aspect of the business, like I wasn't paying the bills. Here's the, it was a sweet, sweet deal because I got to feel what it's like to be the person responsible but not be financially responsible. And it was 24 seven. It didn't shut off. And I know if for the studio owners listening, I know what that feels like to think I just have to sell and sell and sell these teachers. And one of the hardest part about that was that yoga teachers would come to the studio. I wasn't the only one that felt like this because we hired another admin. I soon passed it over to her and she was like, wow, I got to wrap this up and get out of this role. This is too much. I can even share what we did with the yoga studio because it's still running and it's running at a really cool, it has a, it has a very unique business model. Um, but part of what we did is we made the choice. So we made the choice at the beginning that this would be a community yoga space and that our teachers could teach anywhere. They could put posters up for their other classes. Say if they went to teach in their, on their deck in the summer, they could put those posters up at the studio. They could put things on the website about their other classes. Like this was very unique. Our students felt that. So they, I think they weren't used to it in the, in the town that we're in. Uh, it made such a difference. And then 
things would come up. Like yoga teachers would say that they were going to start. We would get all ready, get their stuff up on the website. You know, things happen and then they would be off teaching somewhere else completely. Like we had helped them make their bio, help them with marketing. And then they, they didn't like, maybe they taught a few classes or this, this didn't happen often, but it sometimes did. And instead of like shutting them off and saying, you're, you're, we don't want to hear from you ever again. We were just like that. That's okay. You know, we took a lot. Another key piece that we did was we hosted a round Robin for all yoga teachers. So we have a hundred yoga teachers in a Facebook group all around us in two counties. And we invited them to come in for a two hour class. Students were invited as well. And then we would just divide up the time. And when they got to the front, they were able to say who they were, where they taught and then teach to these students. So it was like a form of marketing for them at our studio. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And I have seen other other ways that studios in different areas cooperate with each other. Um, I have not seen that so much in my area, um, but part of that is because there's basically two enormous behemoth studios here, and then like ten smaller ones. Right. So. Um, it doesn't really behoove the behemoth ones. Well, anyway, they're, they're in that big, like it's, it's a whole, it's a whole nother story to talk about that, <laughs> which we don't have time for. Cause I have to go pick my daughter up from, from preschool, but I've, I definitely, you know, would love to hear from people on the yoga teacher resource Facebook group. If you, have any experience with ways that yoga studios cooperate with each other to promote community over competition. I would, I'd be really curious about that because I know I've heard little, little bits and pieces of that. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear that and love for the conversation to continue. Absolutely. Yeah. So Shannon, do you have, um, do you want to share with the listeners how people can find you and how they can find your podcast and listen to your podcast and work with you potentially, if that's something that they're interested in. Sure. They can go to the connected yoga teacher.com. That's our website. And from there you can find our Facebook group or uh, send me an email, lots of things. There's free resources on the website. Yeah. And if they want to get to know me, uh, the best way is probably through the podcast. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been a really fun conversation. I feel like I could probably keep going for another, you know, three hours or so. <laughs> but do you feel like there's anything else that you want to say to wrap things up? I don't think so. I think the only message is to go back and think, you know, I am this unique, amazing yoga teacher sharing yoga in my own way that no one else can do. And, and to really keep digging in and finding out what that is. That's about it. And there is enough. Yeah, there are, there are enough students. There's lots of people that aren't doing yoga yet. Yeah. And we don't own our students. No. That's the one thing. I think that's maybe the last thing to touch on that we haven't quite said explicitly yet is sometimes I have gotten this, this sense of ownership yes. from studios or teachers but every student is actually first and foremost an individual who is making their own choices. 
And for every student we lose, we can gain a student. There's, you know, not that we can lose them, but if, you know, if they attend, choose to spend their time in other classes or in other studios, you know, I think the best thing we can do is wish them well on their journey. And to know that we served them in the way that we were able to serve them for a time. And that might come back around, but you know, that, that comes back to the principle of non-attachment that the more that we kind of try to hook into an idea or a person, especially a person, God, think of a relationship, right? The more you try to hang on, the more that person wants to go. So we really need to respect the autonomy of our students and, you know, serve the best we can and also wish them well when they choose, you know, another teacher or another studio or, you know, another type of practice, CrossFit, who knows, right? Yeah. Yeah. I try and catch myself when I say my students, I know I still say it, but I try and kind of catch that. What do you say instead? the students in my class, the students that came to class tonight, I try to, to switch that around, but I know it still comes up. If someone's like, Oh, so-and-so was in my class. Uh, sometimes it'll just rise up a little moment. Like, Hey, wait a second. That person loves to come to my class, but you know, how cool is it then that they're going and doing two classes a week now, which I don't offer. I don't even offer. I only offer one group class a week. So (laughs) super cool it's awesome and I you know I don't want to only learn from one teacher yeah exactly exactly I don't want somebody to look at me and say you're my student you can't go anywhere else that sounds like cult dynamics or you know dysfunctional relationship yes very very it's so good I'm glad you brought that point up I'm so excited about your podcast I listened to the first few episodes there and it is fantastic. I'm so oh, glad that you're thank doing Thank you. Gosh, that means a lot coming from you. I really appreciate it. I know it's not easy, but keep going. Okay. Even I, on those I, weeks I, where you're like, oh, I have to sit down to this mic. Keep going. Well, and <laughs> and the same goes for the teachers. I, I'm planning to put out a podcast. I'm it's kind of just still in the birthing stages. I'm going to do one on listen to this podcast on those days you feel like giving up. (laughs) Yeah. On those days where you're just like, do I have to go and teach tonight? You know, everybody's out in their garden. That's the way I was feeling a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) Oh my God. This is like a a story. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's relevant enough to tell or not, but I'm going to go ahead and tell it. But I was teaching at a teacher training just a few um, weeks or months ago. And one of the person people in the teacher training looked at me and he goes, do you remember when we first met? And I was like, oh gosh, you know, I'm not sure. When was it? And he was like, it was 10 years ago at the YMCA. And I remember I did not like you. <laughs> I came to your class and it was a good class, but you started the class by telling us that you had a hard time pulling yourself away from your garden and you like had felt resistance to coming. And I was like, okay. <laughs> You know, because part of my, gosh, part of my personality, but then also my work is to be transparent. I'm try, I, I do, I try to be transparent. Here is where I'm at. I don't want to like fake it because that doesn't work well. So, I mean, I just had to kind of surrender into the fact that A, 
people don't always react well to that. That's okay. And B, you know, it was also a good example of here, this person, you know, kept coming back. And like, even though he had, it didn't, sometimes people have an initial reaction that's kind of like triggered, but mm-hmm. then you can win them back over. You know, you can, <laughs> they, they can come to see the, you know, the, the heartwarming, full complexity of you as a human. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's a fun story. I love that he shared it with you because often I know. we don't know what our students are thinking. I know. And then he was like, uh oh, do I did I did I do bad? Do I owe you an apology? And I was like, definitely not. I, you know, I was like, listen, being forthright is a value for me. Yes. Yeah. So you never owe me an apology for telling me the truth. Yeah. <laughs> What a gift. Oh, that's such a gift. (laughs) Well, on that note, I'm really looking forward to being on your podcast, Shannon. Yeah, me too. I'm excited. And we'll wrap up for the day and we'll stay in touch. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Even though I'm still somewhat new to this this medium of podcasting and not completely comfortable, Shannon, she is so comfortable. She really put me at ease and it was it was a really fun episode for me. I also hope that it gave you some tools and some inspiration for approaching other yoga teachers with a spirit of cooperation and support even if sometimes they don't appear to be treating you in the same way. What I would love for you to do today, right after this episode is finished or at your first possible moment that you're available to, is pull out a piece of paper or a journal, if you prefer that, and write down a time recently that you felt a twinge of envy or jealousy. Then consider what the invitation of that feeling is. What potential do you have in this area that you're not fully showing up for? It's okay if it's not completely clear, if the invitation isn't absolutely crystal clear at first. You can write down some ideas, some possibilities, and let it percolate because it's really amazing once you set your brain on a question It's like your subconscious will keep working on the problem in the background. And one day you'll just like wake up with an insight or maybe the pattern will come up a few more times before you figure out what the actual invitation is, what the potential is for you. Now for the super brave and motivated, the extra credit would be to come onto the private Facebook group, the Yoga Teacher Resource Community that uh, many of you are members of. And if you're not, I welcome you to just search that on Facebook, the Yoga Teacher Resource Community, and request membership. Come onto that group and share with us what your moment was and what your insight was. I would really love to hear, you know, I mean, I I've, I think I've mentioned this before, but I'm sitting here, I'm literally recording in my two and a half year old's bedroom 
because my my stepchild who's 20 just moved back in with us. Our house is super full right now. And I have set myself up in a nook in my daughter's bedroom. And I'm here all by myself. Sometimes I'm doing interviews on the computer, but I'm I'm like really kind of I need feedback. So the more that I can get some interaction from you guys, the more it feeds me, the more I know what to focus on, what's really helpful, what's maybe not as helpful. So anyway, if you do that, I will be super, super impressed and also very grateful. I want to say that this has been a really intense week for me. Because my, like I said, my stepchild just moved back in. That was yesterday, maybe the day before. My teenager is off school for the summer. And my two and a half year old is off school for a week. She goes to a little preschool. So I'm a little behind. I'm recording this outro um, a lot later than than would be my preference. But... I'm also in this final push to finish my project of having phone conversations with 100 yoga teachers. It has been a really incredibly inspiring and helpful project. And also at this point, you know, I'm I'm on my last 10 conversations and I'm definitely ready to wrap it up and have a little bit more ability to focus on the podcast without that extra, you know, that thing when you have something that's unfinished, like there's that, it hangs over my head. Like I I know that that's there too. Most of the people for my 100 Conversations Project came off of my email list and that was really cool. Some of them I was already connected to, some of them I already knew, and some of them were brand new to me. And it was really... kind of beautiful to now not feel like I'm emailing into the void, but like have more faces and personalities and, and hopes and dreams and knowledge about the people that I'm emailing. So that was really cool. The other thing that happened, and this was kind of unexpected, some of the people that I had a conversation with then forwarded my email to their friends, their yoga teacher friends. And I ended up meeting these really amazing people who I wouldn't have met otherwise by that connection. And it made me realize that, you know, the word of mouth is such a powerful tool. So I have one final request for you. If you think this podcast is helpful and you have yoga teacher friends that you think would enjoy listening to it, please send them a quick email, send them a quick text, let them know about it. That would be like a huge gift to me. And hopefully, I mean, the idea is that you would really send them, send this to people who would benefit too. So it would be kind of a mutual, mutual thing. Before I sign off for today, I want to let you know about next week's episode because it's a really good one. I have a conversation with physical therapist and yoga teacher, Dr. Crystal Frazee, about the physiology of breathing. And you guys, this, it is rich. It is really, really valuable, deep, important content for yoga teachers to know. 
So I hope that you'll come back and check that one out next week. And until then, have an amazing week and hopefully see you on the Facebook group.